Welcome back to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of the channel. With his new book, Back to America, Identity, Political Culture, and the Tea Party Movement, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2019, Professor Bill Westermeyer explores the once powerful Tea Party Movement and the changing nature of political culture in the contemporary United States. Through extended fieldwork with local Tea Party groups, he documents the distinctive cultural world of the Tea Party movement and the personal journeys that drew participants to it. Westermeyer identifies feelings of political dislocation and disempowerment among Tea Party members, as well as fears about the perceived decline of the country due to secularization. He addresses issues of race within the Tea Party as well, arguing that simply dismissing the Tea Party as a white supremacist movement misses the complexity of how Tea Party members think about and talk about race. He also considers tensions and differences within and between local Tea Party groups, as well as their varying relationships and degrees of connections to the national Tea Party movement. Ultimately, Westermeyer argues, understanding the Tea Party movement its popularity, and the cultural world it figured is as crucial today as it was during the party's heyday. For while the Tea Party movement and Trumpism are not the same thing, Westermeyer writes, quote, as Mark Twain might have said, they sure rhyme. I'm excited to be talking today with Dr. Bill Westermeyer, author of Back to America, Identity, Political Culture, and the Tea Party Movement, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2019. In the interest of full disclosure, I should note that I have a personal connection to Dr. Westermeyer's book, as it was published as part of a series I co-edit with James Bielow for University of Nebraska Press on the Anthropology of Contemporary North America. So, Dr. Westermeyer, welcome to the show. Hello. Um, So, if you could uh, begin for us, uh, could you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, Currently, I'm uh, at the University of South Carolina at Aiken. Uh, I grew up in Southern California in Santa Barbara, and I received my BA uh, from UC San Diego uh, in political science. I spent, after my undergrad years, I actually spent uh, almost 15 years doing uh, political work uh, in California and in many uh, Western states. Uh, So I came to anthropology actually late. Uh, I I started graduate school uh, well in my 30s, actually, uh, and and I did graduate school at the uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, so I uh, did research, uh, as we're going to talk about, and uh, now I am at the University of South Carolina. That's great. Um, so let's talk about Back to America. You write that the book is an effort to make sense of what you were seeing in the Tea Party movement in light of your own political and scholarly experience. So h- how did you come to this topic in the first place? Well, coming to the specific topic was was actually uh, almost serendipitous. Uh, I was interested initially in doing research on uh, anth- ethnographic research on uh, the an election by going to a specific part of the country and studying different groups that were coming together for uh, the 2010 election. And, uh, and I, I chose a certain area in North Carolina to do it because of the, the demographics and the economics. And, and uh, when I got there in uh, early 2010, I wasn't finding a lot of political organizations operating where I was. But what I started to run into repeatedly was Tea Party groups. 
And this was in 2010 as the Tea Party was rising. And in the area that I was working in, I saw all these groups. And talking with my uh, my committee about it, um, they said, you know, you really need to change your topic here. Uh, so I, I completely revamped it um, and started working, uh, started uh, building contacts with these Tea Party groups in Central North Carolina. Um, and oddly enough, there were uh, very, very few other anthropologists that were actually doing research with, with Tea Party groups. I only knew of, of uh, three or four, actually. Um, now, more broadly, um, one of the reasons that I wanted to study anthropology after leaving political work was because of what I saw from doing political work. I, I worked at the grassroots level. I was a, a political operative, you could say, or a, uh, and I engaged in a lot of grassroots politics. We called it parking lot politics, a lot of petitioning and canvassing and things like that. And I found in a lot of instances that uh, the more sort of structural and hierarchical politics that I learned about in political science in college wasn't really what I was seeing. I was seeing a lot of culture uh, when I was, I was seeing a lot of cultural understandings and uh, people's political ideas and their political viewpoints were oftentimes the result of, of where they were and their lives and, and other aspects that were um, that one could unlock by, by speaking and talking with people over an extended uh, extended period of time. If I could give you one one example of, of what I'm talking about, um, I once worked in uh, the state of Utah on a, an initiative, a ballot proposition to make it more difficult for uh, police to engage in asset seizure during uh, arrests. And I was working in Utah, and my first impression was, well, this is a very conservative state, and uh, these people aren't going to support this because uh, it sounds kind of liberal. But upon getting to Utah and with a large population of, of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Mormons, um, I found that that issue resonated with them because of the seizure of property that they had uh, undergone by the government earlier in the Mormons' history. So actually, they were much more supportive than I would have figured. But I wouldn't have figured that out without actually understanding the experience that those people went to went through sorry so to make a long story short what what i wanted to do was to engage in understanding politics from this level of 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 uh of culture of of personal histories and 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 uh the meanings that people attach to political issues well, and that sounds like, in a way, an answer to one of the next questions I wanted to ask, which was, what initially drew you to ethnographic research in the first place? Yeah, I did. I did answer that to a degree. I, I think. I let me take it from another uh, direction, though. I also uh, was bothered by uh, political analyses that that um, attribute uh, uh, agency to large, huge demographic groups and maybe give those groups larger uh, power or influence than, or, or, than they, than they uh, should deserve. For instance, saying, well, all of these people are doing this because they're white male Southerners. 
right? And saying, okay, this is what white male Southerners do. And while that can be useful in some regards, I, I find that there is a lot more complexity to people's political, uh, the, the path people take to political subjectivities. Uh, so that was another reason that ethnographic research is so important because you're able to spend an extended period of time watching and talking with people to understand the nuance and the differences uh, uh, between uh, between different people that may nonetheless have the same demographic position, but also um, that may look to have the same uh, political positions. But if from the book you see that that people come to the Tea Party from very very different uh, perspectives, and that would not that could not have been uncovered without a very very sophisticated survey. Uh, uh, a, a quantitative survey. So I, I think ethnographic research is so important for understanding uh, politics. And so what exactly did your ethnographic research for this book end up entailing? I began to contact groups of of Tea Party activists. So the way that the Tea Party was organized at the grassroots level were um, what I call in the book local Tea Party groups. And these were municipal level organizations, small local organizations of everyday citizens who met on a regular basis in a, uh, an American Legion hall or a rented space or sometimes in a restaurant like a Golden Corral or something like that. And, um, and in the area that I was living at the time where I planned to do my research, I was able to very easily contact uh eight groups uh and i first started by just showing up and telling them what i was doing uh and asking if i could observe uh observe their groups and uh i did that for 18 months of going to different group meetings uh their regularly held meetings i waited a good six months of just observing and chit-chatting with people in their meetings uh, and then I started doing interviews, uh, semi-structured interviews with people after that. Uh, I wanted to wait for them to feel comfortable with me. Um, and at that point, I did uh, about 60 semi-structured interviews. Um, and I think, I think I participated in, I think it was 75 or 80 uh, events and meetings that the, that the groups did over the course of about 18 months. So once you had finished all of that um, diverse field work, what did the writing process look like for you? How did you go about turning all of that information? Because I can only imagine the page counts of transcriptions and field notes. How did you go about turning all of that into a book? The transcription was uh, really a nightmare <laughs> to do. Um, and I'll, you know, this sort of answers your question in a couple of ways. The first thing I have to say is that, that being a little older, I, I sort of was raised in a world where we didn't do everything on a keyboard. So I was raised writing. And uh, so I had to transcribe my interviews by using uh, a voice to text uh, program. So I was literally reading out loud my, my, uh, uh, repeating rather my recordings into a microphone and having them <laughs> transcribed. Uh, so that took a while. Um, so after I transcribed all the all the data, what I did was I I sat down for 
gosh, it must've been a week or two, uh, in a, in a coffee place in Chapel Hill and just read the entire body of research that I had done. I just read everything with a notepad, um, and started writing down themes that were emerging from the, from the data. So I was, I was trying to be, uh, inductive about it. I was not trying to say, well, this is, you know, I, w- I wasn't trying to, to, uh, uh, validate what I was thinking, but actually grasp theory as I read through the, 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 the material. So I spent a good deal of time, came up with, uh, several themes. Um, I then, uh, uh, coded or actually indexed all of it using, uh, in vivo, analyzed the data, uh, and then, and then did the writing, uh, and as I said, I'm, I wasn't raised as a typer. So, um, in the, in the questions you, you sent me, uh, one part of it says, did you write on paper? Yes, actually I wrote the entire, almost the entire manuscript on yellow legal pads and then, and then, uh, trans transferred them to, uh, to text actually. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's how we, that's how we, we produced the, the book. It was all in longhand on yellow legal pets. <laughs> I like it. I like the old school approach. I uh, I don't necessarily write out my entire manuscripts on paper, but certainly the the beginning of the process starts there for me always. Yeah, I couldn't. I found that when I came back to school uh, in my thirties, that I was just I was trying to compose on a keyboard, and I, and just it was everything came out too choppy, and uh, so I just started writing things and. Uh, um, I find it works. It works much better. So then let's turn to the book itself. Um, in your introduction, you note that your own political positions rarely aligned with those of the people you were studying. And I think that's one of the first questions many people would have uh, about your book, right? Which is sort of how you navigated the political differences and the differences in perspective between yourself and the individuals that you're writing about. So I thought perhaps you could speak a little bit about that. Yes. Some of my uh, friends who, who, some of my friendships that I had while I was uh, producing this um, would often say, I don't know how you did that. Um, you know, them knowing me and, and what have you. Um, so the, a couple of ways to answer this. One of them is, is fairly simple. The other uh, is one that I still, uh, I still uh, ruminate over. Um, first, when I did political work, um, I often worked on what some people may be familiar with as ballot propositions or initiatives. These are issues that go in front of voters and people vote yes or no on them. So in other words, I was oftentimes approaching voters on single issues. And oftentimes when somebody agreed with the issue I was working on, they may not have agreed on other issues that I might hold dear. Um, and I had to sort of suppress that um, when I was doing political work. Says I, I don't care if your political beliefs uh, I find offensive as long as you agree with this issue that I'm working on right here. Um, and this is a lot of uh, what, uh, Saul Alinsky, a great uh, organizer, used to used to speak of, um, and so that I think was a good preparation for me to do this research because I was very used to sort of putting my own uh, political sensibilities to the side and listening to what people were uh, believing. Now the other point was more of an ethical problem that I still I still think about, and that is I didn't 
want to tell people what my political views were. And, and I told them that up front. I, I told them I would prefer not to discuss my political beliefs because I didn't want it to affect the way that you were responding to me. And um, the reason I think that was important was from the way that I was beginning to understand right-wing populism in America. And that is right-wing populism today has a very strong demonization of opposition. And if I had told people my political views, which were, which are left of center, um, well, left of center, that they may actually think of me as one less of a, of a, of a reasonable person, uh, two, that I was maybe some type of a spy uh, who was going to, I had a, I had a, an informant tell me once I, uh, Bill, hopefully he's not going to try to make, look, make us look like a bunch of idiots. Um, and, uh, so I was very cognizant of that. And, and, um, and I think the, the, the point of this was what did I produce afterward? Did I produce a, a piece of work that was, that was fair to the people who I would not be ashamed of showing them the manuscript and, and, and that's what came out. I was honest with the way my people were, uh, and I believe that those two factors made sure that the data I got was was good, was good. Well, and I think that another topic people are immediately going to have when they come to this book, so I, I figure we'll end up talking more about it later, but we might as well address it head on in the beginning, is that you say that while the Tea Party movement and Trumpism are not the same thing, as Mark Twain might have said, they sure rhyme. So I wondered if you could tease out those parallels a little bit now, just to give us a sense of, of some of the connections you see to, so we can keep them in mind as we talk about the book. Yes. Um, and actually part of this is uh, one of your last questions about what I'm actually doing now. Um, and that's one of the questions uh, that I'm working on right now is, is how did my Tea Party informants become strong? Trump supporters. And uh, to answer the to answer your question here, I believe that the the purpose is uh, to look at the definition of of populism. Um, this idea that that a group of people are in opposition to uh, an elite, and also that both Trump and Tea Party supporters both feel a sense of stigma. Uh, in regard to the broader society, that they are sort of people uh, outside of time, maybe, or um, uh, though I didn't completely agree with this book, the title that Arlie Hochschild had for "Strangers in Their Own Land" is actually an apt metaphor for how both of these groups feel. And I found that that they're they come from different places, but what they're practicing is very, very similar, a reaction to a sense of stigma. For the Tea Party, it was the sense of stigma of being uh, patriotic and these, these sort of 1950s values. Uh, for Trump supporters, it's, it's being looked at as backwards rural deplorables. Um, so they're different, but they have a very, very common theme that that runs through uh, right wing populism uh, historically, you know, for or, or populism in general, actually, for the last you know two hundred years. 
Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so uh, to, to focus in on the people you did meet and, and talk to, um, how did they come to the Tea Party movement? What, why were they initially attracted to it? The Most of the people that I spoke with um, during this research had not done political work before, or at least intense political work before. Many of them, though, did have bad experiences dealing with politics or politicians. Um, one of the points I make in the in the book is a lot of people actually try to involve themselves in their local county level uh, political party, Republican Party organizations, and found those organizations as very ossified. Um, several use the term "good old boys networks." Um, which I, I think the the gendered description is actually apt, uh, not just because that's kind of a, a, a cliche, but but it, it, they are they were gendered spaces, um, and so people didn't feel that they were either welcome or could affect much change. And they also the local political groups were often run by the elites of the community, you know, the the real estate developers and the insurance people, and you know, so so they were often controlled and and they weren't really interested in dramatic change either. Um, secondly, um, I believe that they were motivated by the emergence of this Tea Party discourse in, in 2009. Um, I, uh, I think what I write in the book is that the economic problems of 2008 uh, were very frightening to a lot of people. And Barack Obama came into office. Here was a president that did not look like them. Uh, but more so, there were some very radical, well, not radical, but more uh, comprehensive solutions that Obama was proposing to pull the economy out of recession, which entailed um, adding, you know, nearly a trillion dollars in in debt to the to the deficit, and I was thinking about this, and and you know, aside from large tax cuts, I don't think America has really seen a large amount of deficit spending um, for uh, for something like this since the Great Society. So a lot of people have not seen this huge amount of spending being done on everything from cash for clunkers to uh, doing mortgages to shovel-ready projects. All those things were going on. And I don't think most people had experienced that since the Great Society of the 1960s. So a lot of people hadn't experienced it in their whole life. So I think people were a little shocked by it. I think people were a little worried. But finally, the the other point is that you had Fox News and you had uh, Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck, all of these media sources that they were listening to energizing them also. Um, and you had the famous, you know, Santelli rant that happened on CNBC in, in 2009. So I think that there was some angst that people had. I think there was some motivation by media that was going on. There were personal uh, problems that they had had with their local party organizations uh, also happening. And then the groups themselves were often formed by uh, a small group of people who knew each other through 
church or neighborhood or something like that. And they often started a Facebook page. Um, they registered their group uh, with a large Tea Party group called Tea Party Patriots um, so people could find them. And they also put little ads in their local newspapers and people began to show up for these these meetings. Um, some of the groups also sort of started off their their organizations by having a, a, a tax day protest at their post office or federal building or something like that. And some of these little groups had quite remarkable numbers of people showing up uh, for these these uh, these protests on uh, March, April 15th of, of 2009. Uh, so those were some of the some of the things that brought people to the, the Tea Party movement. I really like the anthropological eye that you bring to this study. And uh, one of the things you write is that, and I'm quoting you here, anyone observing the Tea Party can easily discern a distinctive cultural world. The Tea Party has created a set of identities, practices, emotions, and symbols that constitute what it means to be a Tea Party member. And, and that really, that world is what your book is, is documenting and exploring and, and helping a reader to think about. So can you describe in general, sort of what did that cultural world look like? Yes. And you're right. It, it's, a, it's a primary theoretical position that I take in the, in the book, and I'm building on the, the theories of, uh, of Dorothy Holland, um, who was a, a longtime anthropologist at, uh, at UNC Chapel Hill before, uh, before passing away last, uh, earlier this year, actually. Um, the idea of the cultural world, um, she called them uh, figured worlds. And what they are is they're based on this idea that, that all of us inhabit uh, uh, cultural worlds, social worlds that encompass uh, activities and beliefs. One way to visualize it is the way that children participate in uh, play worlds, you know, being a fireman or being a doctor. And what they do is they appropriate language and, and you know, bodily behavior and, um, and clothing and, you know, imaginary stethoscope, for instance, or something like that. And they play this world. Well, I think humans do this throughout their, their lives. And all of us participate in these cultural worlds where we have a, a language and we have certain jokes and we uh, we have certain symbols and ways of holding ourselves and and behaving uh, based on these cultural worlds that were that we either join or recruited into. Um, one of the uh, one of the best examples and one of the ways that I was able to sort of understand this was um, when I was uh, earlier in college. I spent a lot of years waiting tables, and the idea of the the cultural world that you have when you're working in a restaurant. There's different language. There's different ways of behaving. There's your your sort of a Goffman front of the house and, and back of the house uh, behavior that you have. Um, there are things that you could talk about that somebody else completely wouldn't under understand. Um, and the Tea Party is this kind of world. Um, people were unsatisfied with the way the country was. Uh, and also they were unsatisfied that their way of seeing the world politically and socially was not valued in the society. So the Tea Party formed this world that people could inhabit 
and operate within for a little bit of time every, you know, every few weeks. And they could um, celebrate the founding fathers. They could read the Constitution. They could talk about how uh, American values are, are going to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, all of these things they could do in these spaces. And it was a, it was a world. It was a little social world that people occupied. And uh, I think that's a very important way to look at how, um, to a large degree, social movements operate. People exist in cultural worlds of the, of the social movement. Uh, and this is the basis in which one fashions a, a sense of political self, you know, a, a sense of political identity. Um, so for the, for the Tea Party, um, one would enter this cultural world through, you know, say, entering through a local Tea Party group, and there would be the Pledge of Allegiance right off the bat. And then people would say a Christian prayer. And then uh, people would uh, sometimes have a history lesson, or they would talk about one of the articles of the Constitution. They would plan political activities, like what maybe going and sitting in on a on a board of commissioners meeting. Um, they would talk about uh, uh, how they see American culture, and they would often frame the problems in America. They would frame those things in on the in the context of the cultural world. Well, if America followed the founding fathers, if they followed the constitution, we wouldn't have these problems. So it was, it was not just a world that one are, uh, participated in, but it was also a frame in which to value events and people, uh, in, in, including me, uh, at, at one point. So that, that's how the cultural world operates. Well, I'm an anthropologist in an American studies department, so I also sort of accidentally ended up teaching history as well as anthropology. Um, and I was really interested from, from that perspective, I was interested in your discussion of the ways Tea Party members use historical facts, and, and you write facts in quotes, um, and, and you describe these facts as being deployed sort of as, quote, hidden treasures that buttress their vision of America. And I found that really fascinating, and, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about some examples of those sorts of, of facts and how they were used. Yes. Um, part of uh, – I'm, I'm going to go off for just a second and, and explain one thing. I, I used uh, – I read a, a book by uh, an historian uh, named Jill Lepore who wrote a book called uh, The Whites of Their Eyes, and it was – how Tea Partyists use uh, use history, and one of the points that she makes is that, to a large degree, uh, people in the Tea Party were were making the people of the past, you know, the founding fathers, almost contemporaneous with today, and trying to judge how they would act uh, in regards to healthcare reform or something something like that. And and Jill Laporte found this as a problematic way to look at history because, you know, history changes, you know, you can't, there's no direct analogs between then and now that's, that's one point, but more directly to your, your question. Um, there were a couple of really interesting stories. Uh, one of them was regarding, uh, how, uh, God favored, uh, the Americans in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, American Revolution, excuse me. 
Uh, so, for instance, there's the very famous story uh, of when George Washington evacuated uh, Brooklyn Heights uh, when he was being driven out of New York by the by the British. Um, uh, he had to cross. Uh, I think it was the East River. I think he had to cross the East River and there were British warships in the East River. But there was a fog that night and Washington was able to evacuate almost his entire army across this river. Uh, without the British seeing him. And just as he was finishing, the the fog lifted. And I heard uh, on a couple of occasions people using that story as indication of the divine providence of the American story, you know, the, the, uh, that America favored the, the American, uh, American Revolution. So that was one of them. One that was a little bit more problematic was when Tea Partyists often like to say that America was founded as a Christian nation. Um, and one of their ways they support that idea is by saying that most of the founding fathers were clergymen. And that it's a problematic statement. And the, the reason they say it is because most of the early founding fathers went to college at um, – at religious-based institutions, William and Mary or Harvard. And, th and that was all you had back then. Um, so by implying that they went to religious-based universities, that then they were then clergymen. And that's not exactly accurate. So that was another one of those historical stories they used to buttress their, their point of view, when in reality, it's not actually true. It's not really actually the way, the way things work. Well, and as you mentioned earlier, social movement participation is is a highly personal journey. And you write that people joined the, quote, figured world of Tea Party because they found resonance between it and the personal experiences and beliefs that they already had. And and I wonder if you could speak more about that, about the, the personal resonance, because it, it sounds like this discussion of historical facts and the way where they were being deployed connects to this yes um i this is one of the primary besides the cultural world this is the other main takeaway that i want to uh, want people to have for this for this book uh that in order to understand why people do what they do politically you have to understand the personal trajectory that they've taken uh what what have they experienced uh, in their in their lives that bring them to that place that 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 they are at in in the social movement? And I spend an entire chapter uh, with several different people tracing their path uh, to joining the Tea Party based on their their earlier lives. And uh, I think the my most famous uh, my most favorite one. Uh, in that chapter is, is the, is the one I do at the end, which is, um, which was a very pious Christian woman, um, who was a very strong tea party supporter. And, and what she, she, her experience was working in the furniture mills in North Carolina in the, in the sixties and seventies. She grew up in the low country of South Carolina, um, so she had been poor her entire life. She was a sharecropper, actually, in 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 the, in the Low Country, and she was very religious. And 
when I asked her why she joined the Tea Party, she started talking about her uh, the religion of America and how it was being uh, – well, she was talking about how America was secularizing. Um, how, for instance, uh, she said Madeline Murray O'Hare took religion out of schools, which was the woman who who uh, filed the lawsuit against prayer in school. And she talked about Roe versus Wade. And in these ideas, she was saying that the government was was making uh, America a, a bad country in God's eyes. And so as a result of that, the Tea Party was her way of bringing God uh, back in by having the people more active in 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 the in the politics in politics uh in america um let's see another was a woman who well was it was it a man uh in tobacco country in north of north carolina who uh who felt that politics was made up of backstabbing and deal making and he saw it as inherently corrupt and he had retired from, uh, he was actually a, an executive and he retired and moved back to this area. And he tried to involve himself in some of the local organizations and, and government bodies and, and things in the, in the County. And he kept finding people trying to tear him down. And what he said to me was the tea party isn't like that. They're not trying to promise anything. Anybody We're just trying to hold people accountable at the grassroots. So he had had this bad experience with politics. He was also remembering an earlier time that when he was growing up in that area, when, when, when relations, social relations were much simpler and the economy was much simpler. Um, and he was using that as a, as a, a mirror almost to, to, to understand why he was, why he wanted the change that he wanted or why he was feeling dislocated from, from, from politics. So the book is full of, of a lot of stories of people's personal journey to the tea party. And I, and I, uh, I really am, I'm sort of proud of that, that chapter because I think it's important for us to look at people's politics that way. We're not just uh, responding to, you know, Fox News or MSNBC and saying, okay, that's what I believe. But we, 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 uh, we consume it and we process um, messages through our own lives and then develop political ideas and positions from that. Well, and, and definitely the examples you just mentioned uh, touch on what I find to be some of the most interesting sections of the book, right? Which was really coming at this movement from the grassroots, coming from the people themselves and their lives and and what drew them in and what spoke to them about the Tea Party or their interpretation of it. And, you know, those feelings of political dislocation and disempowerment, ideas about religion and uh, what they perceive as a widespread rejection of Christianity in the United States. I mean, those were just really compelling portions of the manuscript. Um, so I'm, I'm glad those came up in the examples that you mentioned. Another topic that comes up a lot when discussing the Tea Party, you know, one of the most frequent charges that's leveled at the Tea Party and its members is, is that of racism. And, and you explain that dismissing the Tea Party as a white supremacist movement misses the complexity of how Tea Party members think about and talk about race. So what does a more nuanced examination of race and the Tea Party reveal? This uh, is an entire chapter uh, in the book, and it was a challenging chapter to write. Um, and I do 
have to uh, give a shout out uh, for some help I received on this, uh, some some guidance I received on this from Charles Price at the University of North Carolina, uh, who's actually he's at Temple now. Um, I I found that saying that the Tea Party was motivated by racism as being much too simple, and one of the one of the very curious things I found as I was doing my research was that at most of the Tea Party groups, at one point or another, they were very much brainstorming of how to attract more African Americans to the movement. In other words, they they wanted blacks in the Tea Party and could not understand, and seriously could not understand, why they couldn't attract any. And this was a very curious thing, right? To say, well, you know, these are white supremacists, but they want to attract African Americans to the to the Tea Party. That's that's kind of a contradiction. What I argue in the book and from the from the data that I that I have was that the Tea Party is practicing um, a form of of whiteness, uh, and they're also practicing a form of colorblind racism. So the Tea Party is looking at the world through a conservative lens, uh, achievement, self reliance responsibility um the the founding fathers and so as we know that that much of the disadvantage to people of color comes from structural factors uh the or structural power even the power of hierarchy the power the power of uh of even things like implicit bias or or even the institutions that are that are uh reproduced in our society that 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 reproduce uh racial and ethnic, uh, you know, and gender uh, oppression. So in the Tea Party's world, they're not looking at the power of structure. They're looking at the individual. And so in their eyes, any individual should be able to live the American dream. So in a sense, that is inherently racist because it is not taking into account the structural impediments to people of color in America. Now, the other point is that the Tea Party activists are emulating and celebrating the founding fathers. Um, but at the same time, many of those founding fathers owned slaves. So the idea that, that these uh, historical figures are paragons of virtue is not as is, – is contested, is contested in America, and not just by by people of color, but also uh, of, of white Americans also. So there's, those are two points that I, that I speak of uh, in regard to how um, they are practicing a form of racism that is very subtle. And I'm not even, sh you know, we could call it racism. It's, it's colorblind racism. Um, but it's also an ignorance to the way that power operates uh, in institutions and structures in America. I think I could go on a little bit more, but I maybe you might have a, a follow up for me. But I, I think I I think I've answered that okay. Well, it really it really is a rich chapter. I think there's a lot going on in there, and and I think it's interesting when you you talk about that moment on the street when an African American woman walks by and you're there with with people handing out Tea Party literature, and she says, "I'm I'm paraphrasing," but she basically says. 
you know, I, I don't want it. I'm black. Right. And he says, oh, look, she thinks we're racist and sort of finds that really amusing. And there's a disconnect there between that idea that if you're someone who doesn't commit overt acts of racism, you cannot be racist. And I like that you're bringing into the conversation um, other theoretical frameworks and other political frameworks are thinking about what racism looks like and how racism works right. and adding them to this conversation. Point? Sorry. If I could make one point there um, about that, 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 uh, that uh, instance that you're referencing, I want to make sure um, that people realize he was, he, he said, we're, they, she thinks we're a bunch of freaking racists is what he said. That's right. Um, and, but he, he, and yes, he was amused, but he was also equally annoyed and angry mm -hmm. because he felt that he was being unfairly labeled as a racist. So I, I want to make sure that it wasn't just like, ah, she thinks we're racist. Ha ha ha. Right. No, it was, it, it was, it was, you know, darn it. Why are these people thinking this of us? Right. So I want to, I just want to make sure that was, that was clear. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. I do think that's important. No, you're also careful to delineate between the National Tea Party movement and the local Tea Party groups that you studied. So the local Tea Party, gr party groups, you argue, they served as communities of political practice. So I, I wondered if you could tell us a bit, what did those communities look like and, and how did they vary across the different local groups that you studied? The main way that I employ... Um, communities of political practice. And this is a concept um, uh, uh, by Jean Lave and uh, Etienne Wenger uh, called, uh, I think it was called Communities of Practice, I think. No, it, it was called uh, Situational Learning. That's what the book was called. Um, and the idea behind Communities of Practice is that people learn things by doing and watching and trying and having an experienced person overseeing and guiding through doing a novice person. And the Tea Party groups were not just areas where people got together and talked about the Constitution and Founding Fathers, but it was also a place where people learned how to be political activists. And some of the groups, not all of them, but, but some of the groups were just little beehives of political activity. There were so many activities going on and people could get involved in them and they could learn. Um, an example was uh, public speaking. So if you were to go to uh, uh, what we call county commissioners here in California, their board of supervisors, the county legislative bodies, um, oftentimes you're allowed to do, I think they're two or three minute uh, addresses to them at the beginning or the end of their, their sessions. And um, people started doing this at one of the groups or several of the groups actually. And some people were absolutely terrified um, of, of standing up there and actually speaking, but they were helped along by others. And so they became fairly experienced people at speaking and also being pretty hard hitting uh, in these things that they, that they said, people learned how to, leaflet and approach voters going into a polling booth, you know, to give them a, a, a leaflet, you know, to, to, to show them, you know, give them suggestions for voting. So what I mean by these communities of practice, and I think this is what makes the local groups so important, uh, is that they were spaces where people were learning how to be, um, activists. They were, they were schools of democratic process, basically. 
and which I think is important. Um, people may disagree with what they were advocating, but these were places where people were learning how to be uh, what what Ralph Nader once said were full time citizens. You know, and it was it was very very interesting to uh, to watch them develop these uh, these skills uh, these skills of political organizing. And, and what were some of the key tensions and differences you found that emerged both within specific local groups and then between different local Tea Party groups? The one of the tensions, two tensions that that I outline in the book. Um, one was actually in regard to religion. Uh, what was the place of religion in the in the Tea Party? This was a, a common tension uh, that, that was present throughout the work, actually. Many of the people who were Tea Party activists were religious, were, were evangelicals. And, but it was almost like the cultural world of the Tea Party, you weren't supposed to have that. In other words, that wasn't part of the figured world of the Tea Party, was, was devout um, Christianity being brought into the political sphere. Now people argued about that, but but that was a common understanding that there isn't a place for that. But that tension was constantly there. Um and there was one group which was really quite remarkable. It was a it was a man who was very religious who actually had formed a Tea Party group that was more religious than Tea Party instead of the other way around. And this caused him to attract a very unique group of people who were very religious. Um, but it also caused tension when new people would come in and think that they were joining a tea party group and actually seeing that it was, it was more attuned to a, to a church service. And, uh, so that was one of the, one of the tensions. Another tension was how disruptive is a group going to be? Um, are we going to really confront the policymakers in our community about what they are doing about taxes or, or what have you or, or not? And several of the groups were, were quite confrontational, but a couple of the other groups, the people, these were small Southern towns, right? So people knew some of the people running the cities. And so the idea of them confronting these people that they're going to see at the grocery store right or who they went to high school with was was a little bit more difficult so this group in particular did not get involved in much confrontational politics they didn't get much involved in much politics at all because of this uh this idea that they were uh offending people that they that they knew um the one of the largest conflicts uh between groups in other words, different local Tea Party groups, uh, aside from the fact that they really couldn't come together to form a unified body of groups. They tried a couple of times and and just each of them was different and they all liked their autonomy and, and what have you. Uh, but the other thing, after I finished my, uh, my research, uh, a lot of the groups had a huge fracture because of a... Uh, uh, a primary election for, I believe it was for the Senate, the Senate seat um, that was initially won by Tom Tillis in North Carolina. And there were two candidates. One was a very religious person and the other one was just a very conservative person. And 
both within the groups and between the groups, there were huge fissures where people stopped talking to each other uh, and groups stopped uh, communicating with each other because they were supporting these two different candidates. Interestingly, they both lost. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we got, they got Tom Tillis, um, which none of them, none of them uh, supported. So that was another one of the, one of the tensions that was, that was going on. Well, you also described the difference between the groups that functioned as audiences for the National Tea Party movement and those that functioned more as activists. And, and I wonder if you could explain what that difference is and how it manifested in terms of the differences between those local groups. Right. The two primary activities that the the two primary activities that happened in the local Tea Party group meetings were uh, planning political activities, engaging in political activities, and listening to speakers come uh, and talk about things. And these could have been speakers from uh, local organizations. They could have been candidates coming to seek support. Um, they could have been uh, some of the larger Tea Party groups, like a, a representative from uh, Americans for Prosperity or Freedom Works, which were large national level Tea Party groups. Um, and what I found is that in some of the groups in 2010, all of the groups did some type of political activity. Um, they either went out and, and you know, leafleted or uh, did phone banks for candidates or something. All of the groups did something in 2010. But after 2010, the energy started waning and, um, and many of the groups stopped doing outside activist work but they continued to meet and they were meeting and they were meeting for the uh chance to hear these speakers come and as a result they were what i termed audience groups and then several of the other groups continued to do very active organizing um i think there were there were four or five groups that that were really uh quite effective and and quite active and I called those activist groups. And the point that I make in the book is that even though they were different and only one group might have been actually confronting like we see the Tea Party doing, they were nonetheless people coming together and learning about issues, right? And seeing their own efficacy um, as, as, you know, people that politicians are going to come and address. So people were still becoming informed voters. Uh, in the audience groups and not doing much activism in the other groups, they were involved in activism. And, and I just, I want to make the point that though the activist groups were, were probably a bit more interesting uh, and probably a little bit more effective, that there was still things going on in, in groups that uh, were not visible and probably were not being paid attention to by, by groups. But if, somebody wanted to draw upon a large group of high propensity voters, go to a tea party group. Even if they're not doing activism, there's a whole bunch of very conservative people that are going to listen to you. So those were still important spaces for, for people to, to be involved with and important for the movement in, in general. Well, and, and following on that, you, you do note that, especially I think the activist groups, many of them developed new sets of grievances, some of which fell outside the original tea party focus on, on taxes and spending. And, and I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about some examples of these new grievances. Some of them were 
understandable. Uh, the, for instance, the Second Amendment. You know, Second Amendment is is part of the the, the right to bear arms uh, is part of the Constitution. So you know, that's something that people are going to feel very strongly about. And it became almost a a badge of membership to um, get a conceal and carry license, uh, which is a license to carry a concealed uh, firearm. And and they have classes. I, I'm not sure if they do these all over the country, um, but but here in the South, it's it's a very common thing for people to be carrying weapons, um, carrying concealed weapons. Uh, and that was one of the changes that nobody ever really talked about that, you know, uh, as, as one of the tea parties main points, but it became one in the groups, everybody, not everybody, m many people started to get conceal and carry license. Some people didn't want them. And, and that was one of the tensions I think that that was in a, uh, one group that I know of. Um, the most interesting was, uh, and I outline, uh, in a later chapter of the book is the, organizing around what's called agenda 21 this is a group of this is a, a a body of guidelines that was created um from the rio climate summit in the 90s and it's a guideline for local governments in how to become more sustainable and agenda 21 today is seen as a as a conspiracy as a conspiracy to um, to take people's liberty and freedom away by, you know, making them live in condensed housing near, you know, rail lines, for instance, or, or things like that. That is, it's an infringement on their freedom. But when I started my research, nobody was talking about it. And a person in one of the groups started talking about it. And people thought he was kind of nutty for bringing up this conspiracy. But what was really interesting was that there were people starting to talk about it um, in other groups, too. And it was not being talked about on the media, on Fox or uh, in the media, rather, uh, on Fox or, or Glenn Beck, even Glenn Beck, who's a, who peddles in conspiracy theories. It, it, it wasn't even mentioned, but it started to bubble up from the Tea Party groups, this idea of Agenda 21 being a plot. And eventually, the larger organizations noticed this bubbling up from the grassroots, and they appropriated it. And then it started circulating there. And so it was something that actually started with the Tea Party and moved out into the wider conservative network. And, it, and to a degree where it was actually put into the platform at the Republican National Committee um, in 2000, I don't know, 12 or 14 or something. Um, so it was so this is another point that I want to make when when people talk about the Tea Party, they think that. The people are sort of automatons that are blindly listening to Glenn Beck and Fox News and just following orders. When in reality, these local groups were vibrant. They were sites of cultural production where people were developing new grievances that were then fed back into the movement, into the network of movements that that made up the Tea Party. So, um, you know, it's everybody is is uh, political actors act. Right. People who are involved in politics act. They take what they learn and they respond to it and they socialize with it and they use it. Right. It's not just that people are being told what to do politically. Well, and, and I think following on that, you're right that that social movements like the Tea Party, in addition to, to media and online sources, that they're really changing the structural characteristics 
of American institutional politics and sort of resulting in this political culture in which political parties no longer have the power to conceptualize, focus, or even respond to the broad ideological terrain of American political culture. And I thought that was a really powerful statement you make. And and what do you see as the implications of this new structure? I'm not hopeful. Uh, I, and I'm still thinking through, I mean, I obviously I stand behind what I wrote, but I'm still thinking through this um, because it's kind of an area of, of research that I'm doing right now. We can talk about later. Um, but I think we see this happening with, with uh, Donald Trump because most of the Republican, we're seeing this with the in- impeachment that's going on is all the Republicans have pretty much fallen in line behind Trump, but they didn't at the beginning when he was running. And it seems that the Republican party is really irrelevant today. It's this group, this, what they're calling the base, which is being motivated through social media and through Trump's Twitter feed and through social media and, and broadcast media. And a lot of the, issues are being developed and circulated in that way. So the political party, the Republican party to me, doesn't seem almost doesn't seem to exist anymore. Um, uh, there was no way that, uh, here in South Carolina, the former governor, Mark Sanford was going to run for president, but they wouldn't even let him, uh, they wouldn't even open the primary. They canceled the primary because they didn't want Trump to have any, any, uh, opposition. So I think the parties really have become irrelevant. Now, what's the, what are the implications? Uh, I said I'm, I'm not hopeful I, because I think that the, the media architecture that we have today, the bubbles and the echo chambers that, that exist are very dangerous for democracy. And I think that people are not practicing our, our – our democracy has changed and people are not practicing partisanship in regard to this. Or, these are the things that I believe in as a, as a Republican or a Democrat. Oftentimes what people are doing today is saying, what I believe is that I don't believe in those people over there. Those people are bad or evil or sick or something like that. And I think that's one of the, one of the repercussions of this media driven uh, political culture that we have today. I might've gone off your question a little bit, but I, I think that, answers it to a degree. Well, that's great. And I think you, you answered the next one I, I would have asked, right? Which is sort of about how Tea Party has responded to Trump. And, and I think you sort of spoke to that. Um, yes. Um, I was actually surprised. Um, I, I'm actually writing a, a piece for, uh, it's called a, uh, uh, afterward or, a, a, coming back to an article I wrote for the political and legal anthropology review, they've asked me to, to write a, uh, an epilogue basically to the article I wrote a couple of years ago. And I'm, I'm writing that right now in how did my Trump, how did my tea party supporters become such strong Trump supporters? And early in 2000, late in 2016, early 2017, I didn't think that my tea party supporters were going to support Trump um, because I didn't think Trump was the political fundamentalist and the, the founding father, you know, uh, uh, supporting candidates. So I didn't think my Tea Party people were going to fall in line, but they all did. And this is one of the questions that I'm 
pursuing and writing about right now. Uh, and part of it comes back to that idea of right-wing populism and stigma that I, that I mentioned uh, uh, a few minutes ago. And uh, so those are the, the links I see are, are that there's a commonality in right-wing populism that has made these two groups uh, come together. Uh, and the, the other fact is, is that the Tea Party pretty much declined. There are only a couple of groups that are still meeting regularly. Um, so for all intents and purposes, a lot of those local groups have, have ceased to function. Um, and a lot of the national Tea Party groups have become very strong Trump supporting groups also. I really appreciate your, your giving our listeners such a full sense of, of the book and its arguments, uh, both its arguments about the Tea Party movement, but but also about their broader implications, as, as you've been speaking to. And I wanted to ask, as you look back, what was the hardest part of writing this book? I think the hardest part was the race chapter, I think, because uh, I knew that was going to possibly uh, rub some people the wrong way. Um, and I had to make sure that I was not being necessarily an apologist for the movement, um, but trying to be as uh, as objective as I as I could. Um, so that, that was a difficult one. And and there's there's a place there where I contradict a few, a couple of scholars who have written on race in the Tea Party, and I and uh, I wasn't. That's not something I, I do a lot, so I was a little uncomfortable, like you know, calling out another scholar in a in a in a book. I mean, I wasn't harsh about it. I said this is what I I disagree with, um, but that was you know that was a little difficult to do also. Um, so those were the those were the main things about that chapter because I knew it was uh, going to possibly make some people angry, um, some people disagree with me. Um, but I also have gotten some very positive feedback from people uh, on on that chapter. So I think it's probably the one I'm the most proud of uh, in the book, I think. Well, then conversely, what was your favorite part of the book to write? My favorite part was the uh, was the personal paths that people took to the Tea Party. Um, all of these stories that people told me um, that they willingly told me. I mean, I really didn't have to pull things out of them. Uh, and I heard these just wonderful stories of how people were linking their, their political identity to childhood or family history or jobs they had done or something that happened in their childhood. And it was, I, I found it just fascinating. And, and I could have written another, you know, 20 pages on, on that, I think, cause the data was just, was just so rich that, that people, um, that people gave me, I mean, just to give you an example, cause we were just talking about race. Um, oftentimes, uh, there were several times when I started my interview and before I even asked a question, somebody would tell me about their family history and they would always go back to the, well, not always, but they would often go back to the civil war. And I had several people tell me that, well, my family you know, North Carolina was was very torn on joining the Confederacy. It was one of the last states to join, and, and Western North Carolina was never really that loyal to the Confederacy. So, I had several of my consultants say, "Well, my family were were Republicans. We didn't 
we, we didn't support slavery. We didn't support the Confederacy. So it's almost they were confronting this racism charge um, right up front by talking about their, their family, their family history of, of not being part of, uh, part of uh, the Confederacy. Uh, so that's one example, but it, it was really, uh, the data was really fun. Uh, I really enjoyed some of these conversations. And then, and uh, I think it's one of the great things about being an anthropologist is being able to, to sit down and, and hear these ways that people see the world that are, that are so rich and nuanced. Uh, it was, it was great. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I agree on both fronts. I, I love that part of the book. And also I love that ethnography allows us that as researchers and as readers. I think that's that's my favorite part about it. Um, if readers take home only one thing from your book, what would you want it to be? That we should look at people's political outlooks as as nuanced and as complex and as interesting uh, and that we need to not assume that because somebody is, uh, is holding positions that are different than us, that they uh, are less smart or less caring or less human or what have you. Um, that typically if we want to understand why people do things politically, we have to dig a little deeper and understand where they're coming from. And, uh, and I, I personally believe that anthropologists have not been good at this in regard to conservatives. Um, uh, this book, uh, as far as I know, is the only book on the Tea Party that's been written by an anthropologist. And I don't think, while I kind of like cornering the market, it's, it, I don't think that's right. I think there should be more anthropologists that are engaging with the right wing and trying to understand it um, because that's how we're going to understand the, the, the position that our country uh, and the world actually is in right now is through understanding where people's political outlooks are coming from, what their history is, what they're afraid of, what they're angry about. Um, and these, they're different, but every, everybody has them. Everybody has them. Thank you, Bill. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And before I let you go, I wondered if you could tell me, what do you think your next project will be? I am doing uh, a couple of things. First, I want to use a little bit more of the Tea Party data um, to one, write on the Tea Partyists becoming Trump supporters. And then two, uh, I've also not read much on how conservatives visualize environmentalism. And there was that the agenda 21, uh, uh, situation that I talked about a few minutes ago, um, uncovered some interesting ways that, that conservatives look at nature and, and land and the way that humans look at nature. And, and I want to, I want to do a little bit more on that. The next project is going to be difficult and it's going to take some time, but I, I am most, uh, concerned about the dramatic changes in American political culture just over the last couple of years. Um, I think that we have seen with, with uh, not just with Trump, but it's been, it's been made much, much more salient with Trump, but also I think uh, even going back to, to uh, some of the things that Mitch McConnell has done, our political culture, in other words, how we operate as a democracy, both in, institutionally and, and, and in the public 
is based on a culture that is very fragile. And I never realized how fragile this culture is. In other words, how easily it can be disrupted and how things that were not sayable or doable just a few months ago are now sayable and doable. Um, and how things can be that we take for, for being, you know, important aspects of our political culture can be just ignored. Um, I, I got to thinking about this when, when the Senate refused to take up Barack Obama's choice for Supreme Court at the end of his term, when they didn't take up the, and they waited until the election. And they were within their rights to do it, but it was something that should not have happened. And I was very struck by how easy it was for them to change something that was so fundamental in American democracy. So my next project is to do something more expansive on the political culture and how it's shifting dramatically and how fragile that political culture actually is. Um, and that I don't think we realized how fragile our political culture is until just within the last couple of years, I think. Well, I, I think that will be a fascinating book to write and a fascinating book to read. So I will look forward to you writing it and me reading it um, when you've done all the heavy lifting. Um, so, so thank you again, Bill, for talking with me today. I've really appreciated it and enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. Thank you very much. This is Carrie Lane, a host of New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. You've been listening to my interview with Bill Westermeyer, author of Back to America, Identity, Political Culture, and the Tea Party Movement.